Welcome to Three Ain't a Crowd, the podcast all about creativity, mental health, social change and how they interact. My name is Vanda Canton and I'm an artist, facilitator and researcher. Each week I'll be talking to people using creative and artistic ways to change the way we think. Today I'm talking to Mark Lemon. Mark is an author, podcaster, creator of Lemon Drop Books and ambassador for childhood bereavement charity Winston's Wish. Tragically, when Mark was 12 years old, his father was murdered and he has taken on the mission of supporting bereaved children to cope with grief and the pain that comes with that. He was disillusioned with the lack of diversity in children's books and created a series with non-white characters. This includes the Otis and Thea Lemon series, named after his own two children, which won the Platinum Junior Design Award for Children's Book of the Year in 2016. His latest book, The Magical Wood, was awarded bronze in the Best Illustrated Book for Children at the Junior Design Awards 2018. I find Mark's work incredibly moving and his creative and open way of exploring grief, representation and conversation is something to admire. Mark, thank you for being part of Three in a Crowd. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Good. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. And one of the one of the things I was actually thinking about uh, before before we met this morning was about your podcast. So your podcast is called Grief is My Superpower and you talk about your own experience and you also have other people talking about their experiences of of grief and loss. Now, obviously, a lot of people would think of bereavement as something perhaps opposite to a superpower. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you kind of came to that title and and what does it mean for it to be your superpower? Yeah, I guess when when you're thinking about it, the 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 title can be a bit um bit strange, I guess, for anyone listening and and that's uh you know been touched by grief because it's such a painful and uh, you know life changing thing. But I think what I always say is that you know when I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, as we'd already mentioned, and so throughout the years, I have found uh, a way of sort of harnessing that and all the love and the emotion and the feeling that I have from my dad you know, I, I, I do feel that, um, and that it kind of spurs me on to want to sort of use it as a superpower to achieve anything that I'm focused on. And so, and after speaking to my guests, um, and other people, I've sort of realized that it, it can be used as a superpower, um, strangely enough. And through talking to so many different people about their own experiences of grief and how it varies, um, what come what it comes down to is that there is that drive inside of the bereaved to succeed and to you know a lot of people have said that they do it for the loved ones that are no longer here and that kind of drives them on even more um so that that is why i kind of came up with that that title for the podcast yeah mm, that's really interesting i've i've never really thought of it in terms of the the drive which makes a lot of sense to me i think for me, there's a, there's a personal interest and a, a personal kind of gratitude, I think, towards your work, because I lost my dad when I was 17 years old. And it was it was very sudden and it was very traumatic and not not even just around his actual death, but everything that came with that. So, you know, kind of family fallout, the legal responsibilities and the impact of losing a parental attachment. And, you know, I would say it's been 13 years, but it's still something I'm kind of struggling to comprehend because it is such a huge thing to go through and I wonder what your feelings are on in terms of like how bereavement 
relates to trauma and what the impact or particular manifestations of bereavement are, particularly for children and young people? Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, you know, I think when, when a child is starting out in life and, and you, you you kind of have that that thought process that I can't be touched by anything in terms of such pain and emotion at a young age, you know. You always sort of see young people who are going through life and, you know, even like COVID-19. Now, so many people have sort of said, well, you know, we're looking at the 20s to 25-year-olds who are maybe like, oh, I can't, I'm not going to get that. You know, this can't touch me. And so when you're young and you're hit with trauma, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's cancer, whether it's sudden um, uh, death, um, it it changes you and it and it and it sort of alters your mindset forever and so i think that's that's where the trauma really comes into play and i think that's why i really wanted to talk about it so much um to highlight the fact of you know we've, we've there's been so much mental health conversation over the last few years which has been brilliant and you know amazing podcasts like fern cotton's podcast and things like that which are fantastic um but there's always been that perception of that grief might not be a mental health, you know, problem. Or And so the way I've seen it is that if a child suffers a childhood trauma later on in life, if it's not talked about, if it's not raised throughout their teens and they're not expressing themselves and knowing how to do that, then they're going to, they're going to struggle a bit like I have throughout my, my own life, you know, because for many years I wouldn't talk about it, but, um, Thankfully, there are so many great charities out there now and and support for for young people that you know I think we're we're on the right track yeah I've got so many questions, so many, so many I mean, in terms of your own experience and finding a way to talk about what happened and how you were feeling, was there anything in particular that you found helpful, or how did you even start to do you feel that it's something that you've kind of grappled with and overcome? Is it something that still comes up for you on a, a daily basis? Like, where are you at with that? Yeah, it's such an odd one. I mean, grief is uh, its funny. It's become such a, it was never a big part of my life, but it was in a strange way. It was always there in the mm. background. Do you know what I mean? It was always that kind of, that thing that had defined me, but I wasn't really recognizing it. And I wasn't sort of I wasn't acknowledging it like I should have done, you know, for, and it was actually only until I was like 25, I thought, Oh, I'm going to, I'm actually going to revisit counseling and I'm going to go and talk to someone to see what might be there. (laughs) And so I went to, uh, there's a charity called cruise and, and I just sat down for about four or five weeks and just talked to this lady. And I kind of quickly realized that there was all this trauma and emotion that was still there and locked inside that I hadn't expressed. And so, yeah, for for sort of a period after that, maybe I I wouldn't wouldn't talk about it, and then it was only yeah until about four years ago when I I was asked to write an article for the Guardian and and I it was really strange because I sat down and it was a really cathartic process, but it was I had to get out get out the old newspaper clippings of when my dad was killed and and you know it was kind of dig out of my brain all of those emotions and those those things that I've probably put in the back of my mind over the years. And so, yeah, writing that was quite a cathartic process. And then it kind of made me realize that 
I think it was after messages from people who had read the article that there weren't that it's a conversation that needs to keep going and and um and so yeah it's sort of it's kind of manifested itself into my everyday life but do you know what I I wrote an uh well, I was featured in in the Daily Mail <clears throat> the other day, you know, which is not the ideal newspaper, to be fair, if I'm totally honest. But, you know, it was a third party agency, yada, yada. Um, you know, and obviously the comments under that sort of publication is uh, uh, can be horrendous. But, um, you know, it was one maybe like, oh, this guy's dad died years ago. He should be over this, you know, that sort of thing. No, I and I was like, OK, so I thought about it for a sec. And then I moved on from it because I realised that, you don't really know until you're touched by grief and death. You know, that person won't know how how you feel until someone so close to them has gone forever, you know? And so if anything, these things kind of spur me on. It's like, right, we need to continue the conversation because that's kind of where we're at in the UK. That sort of comment kind of captured quite a lot for me. It was like, well, you know, we deal with it, we move on. You know, and whereas a lot of countries and a lot of societies out in the world are fantastic about talking about death and grief. Um, but for me, it still goes in waves and it comes and it goes and it and it and normally when I'm least expecting it, you know, and um, and it's kind of feeling it's it's it could be to do with my children. It could be to do with maybe a message from somebody through, say, Instagram who's listened to the podcast and it's touched them in a way Um and, uh, you know, that's kind of a, that's really nice to receive those messages because it's kind of reassuring, but, um, but, you know, sometimes it hits and, and so you, you know, like, you know, I'm sure it's that you'd never get over it. You know, you, you kind of just learn how to deal with it and build your life around that feeling. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, how, how do you find talking to other people about it? Because full disclosure, I'm probably or I was probably more nervous about this recording than any other, just simply because of my own experience. And it, it's not as if, you know, I keep it secret that my dad died. And also that'd be a bit of a weird and difficult secret to keep. <laughs> but nonetheless, there is something about grief or my own grief, which I find incredibly anxiety inducing. And I can't imagine talking to people about it in the way that you do, which I think is incredibly admirable, but that takes a lot of strength, I think, and a lot of, of resilience. And I, I'm wondering how you manage that and how you maintain your own, I don't know, personal boundaries or your well-being whilst you're recording your podcast. And that is such a apt conversation we're having right now because, you know, like my wife and I do, we, we have a little catch-up maybe in the morning before she's going out, you know, we've... You know any emails that we've received that we need to answer and all this stuff and she was like have you contacted the um supervision yet you know and i basically yeah i kind of at first on the first episode that i did um about a year ago i found it quite hard um but at the same time i knew it was something that was going to help me so it was quite a strange double-edged sword um so it was only until i put that first episode out and i'd listened back to it and and the sort of the the conversation that we'd had, I kind of realized I was onto something that not only would help others, but myself in a strange cathartic way. And so, yeah, it's like anything, I guess, that when you first start doing something, it is a bit, oh, this is a bit strange. I'm not sure how this is going to sit. But, but over time, you kind of find your rhythm and 
you know, realize that with each conversation, you you find healing parts of it that resonate with yourself. Um, but yeah, I so at Christmas time, I, I had I went back and I revisited um, some counseling, um, which was great uh, because it also it makes you realize that yeah, you've got uh, things still there that you need to address, and that will always be the case. And so yeah, I'm going to be sort of. Um, I guess like anyone, like anyone in the role of sort of a counselling or a psychologist or things like that in that sort of field, you need to have that sort of have boundaries, obviously, um, but also be able to talk to somebody about that conversation and how you're feeling and how it made you feel. So you don't let it lock inside of you and carry it. Um, Because, yeah, that can happen, definitely. But that's just quite funny, like before you left, my wife, was she'd sent a load of... uh, yeah, uh, emails over to me to say, have you contacted these guys yet? You know, <laughs> I, but I think it is it is particularly interesting as well, though, to find spaces and it's partly what I love about your podcast. I mean, I was listening to the other day and I was just thinking, my God, I mean, I know that I'm not the only one that's experienced it, but listening to people is incredibly it's 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 quite overwhelming in in a good way of realizing that you're not the only one. I mean, one of the things I'm definitely a bit of a suspect for is covering it with humor. Mm. So if I can see any opportunity to make a dead dad joke, I'll do it. And it's actually it coming from a place of pure agony, but it's the only way I know how to reconcile that in a uh, community environment. And I think partly that's because people find bereavement or death so difficult to talk about. And I, for me, I'm wondering whether that's about the fear of being too close to somebody else's grief and the fear that death is unfortunately something that all of us will experience to some degree or another. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on how to embrace that conversation and why people find it so difficult to talk about. I think it's just because it opens up feelings that you don't like you know like anything I guess that where you're talking about yourself I mean it can be hard to talk about yourself and it can be it sometimes it feels a bit too indulgent you know and I think this is where the whole sort of mental health um the big part of mental health is that people do feel afraid to share how they're feeling and know where to uh, where to put it and and I think grief is one of those things as a, as a sort of, a, you know, historically, it's kind of something where we just, you know, oh, it's happened. Yeah, we're upset for a sec. We move on. And and that's not the case. You know, these kind of feelings, these huge, powerful feelings lock themselves inside of us. And, and you know, it's like me. It's like me with that Guardian article. It kind of, I'd locked a load of things away that I didn't realize were were there. And so... Yeah, I think it's just because it's such a powerful emotion and feeling that we do do not like being put in that space. And I think it's just trying to firstly sort of be kind to ourselves and understand that it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to recognize those feelings and those strong feelings. But it's also fine to sort of move on with your life after you've felt that and smile and have a good day. And, you know, because a lot of people, I think, feel like, you know, you have to wallow and you have to just be in tears all the time. But that's not the case. You know, you make jokes about your dad and that's that's perfectly normal. And and it's a great way of dealing with it. You know, it's it's bringing it's bringing um, a 
a bit of uh, a bit of happiness into it and it's also in your own way remembering him and I think that's it's actually funny a couple of people have said to me about the podcast my mum included <laughs> um gosh you you know you make it sound so happy sometimes and you know and it doesn't feel so doom and gloom and I was like well because it's not you know I, I speak to these people because at the end of the day they want to remember them and and they want to talk about them and they want to honor them by and their legacy by talking about how they feel and just remembering that special moment or what music they liked or or yeah just remembering those those sort of three special things that make them smile about them which is you know which is which i find the most joyful about it is because i'm putting someone in a space where they're like oh this is this is great, you know, and even that question at the end of, you know, if you ha- could have one final conversation with them. Yeah, of of course, it's really emotional and it gets me every time also, but it's also giving someone that space to to put themselves in that that mindset. And, and if they were, what would they say? And generally, it's I love you, which is all it comes down to in my mind, you know. And if I could sit down with my dad, that's what I would tell him. Um and so, yeah, it, it's really strong emotion, which a lot of people do struggle with, including myself. So I get why people do struggle with it. But I just think the more we open up about it, the more we talk about it, um, it will hopefully become a bit more of a norm, I guess, you know? Yeah. Mm. I, that was That was so beautifully put really really beautifully put so thank you for that I mean one of the ways that you are also having these conversations is are through your books so tell me about the journey towards the books like kind of the setup what they're like what the feedback has been like tell me all about the books yeah so I mean the books are I guess the books in a strange way is kind of an also a a, a sort of a, a nod to my dad in the sense of I wanted to create something for the kids as like a legacy, as something that their dad did, you know, and something that they could look at when they're older, maybe with their grandkids or their kids and go, yeah, my dad wrote this. And um, so anyway, when in my old job, I used to commute to Cardiff and back. And uh, and I mean, I've always been quite creative and I, and I enjoyed writing when I was younger and I went to music school. So I sort of enjoyed writing lyrics and things like that. Did you? Yeah, I, I went didn't to the know London that. Music School um, in when was it? Uh, Two thousand and one. Yeah, and studied singing. Sort of, uh, it was like a diploma in um, performance singing. And so I was in a band, and and then after that, actually, I did sort of. I guess it was like session singing, singing on like house tracks um, and performing them in front of you know clubs and stuff um and I loved it I guess my voice is a bit more soulful you might not tell that (laughs) um (laughs) so anyway the creativity's always been there and um so I used to commute to Cardiff and back and I'd find myself and it was you know what sometimes like you know with words they just flow through you and you're like where did that come from where have these words come Mm. from because you know sometimes you don't even think about it and it just flows and anyway I'd sort of sit on that train on the way there and I'd write 2,000 words on my phone, and I'd be like, tap, tap, tap. And I'd find myself writing these stories for Otis originally, uh, Otis Lemon, and um, and then I'd get there, and then on the way back in the evening, I'd polish them up, 
and I'd get home and I'd read them to him before bed. And so at that point, he was around three. Yeah, about three years old. So kind of in a way, it was sort of a perfect age. Um, and then I put them in blog form and I shared them with sort of friends on Facebook and stuff like that. And they were like, oh, we'd like that. He's like, you know, I read them to such and such and we enjoyed them. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to connect with an illustrator and just put a message on Facebook. And a friend of mine um, put me in touch with Mayor Weltsack, who's the, the illustrator. And uh, yeah, we just clicked and we released the first two books. And um, and I basically, I, I started sending out manuscripts to a lot of agents, but it takes so long to come back. And it took like six months. And I might have got, a, yeah, we really like them, but not at this time. And I was like, sod this, I'm doing it on my own. And so I created Lemon Drop Books as an my own imprint and um, just put them out there sort of independently. And yeah, I, we had some, we had a friend who runs a printing company who I still use and, and I had a meeting with him and I was like, well, you know, I'm new to this, but you know, if I get all the, everything together for you, can you print them for me? And, and he did. And uh, yeah, now we're sort of five books in, including The Magical Wood. Um, so yeah, we've got two Otis Lemon books, two Thea Lemon books, because uh, I had to do two for her, obviously. Um, <laughs> but but the other part of it is obviously is that my wife is uh, is from Bristol, but her heritage is Jamaican, so she's a, a black Bristolian. Which when I first met her was quite strange because her accent accent was like, "All right, mate." <laughs> um, but um, so obviously Otis and Thea are mixed race, multicultural um, background. And I, I, I used to go into the shops and I was like, where are, are the mixed race characters? Where are they? Like, there there aren't any. And it was really frustrating. And it kind of spurred me on to want to um, continue uh, putting books out there um, and sort of talk about the diversity element of them and, and sort of shout about it a bit more as well. And you know what? It's mad that in 2020, we're, you know, with the Black Lives Matter and everything going on and recently the books have been you know have been doing very well because people are obviously you know sort of waking up a bit more to their their bookshelves and saying okay you're right where where are they and um so yeah it's um and then obviously like you said about the magical wood it was 2018 end of yeah beginning of 2018 I thought okay it feels natural to write um a book for children to do with bereavement what with everything that happened to me and I'd already been working with Winston's Wish um, already. And I just thought maybe I could sort of dedicate it to to them. And yeah, so I sort of came up with the concept of the magical wood and, and sort of writing a storyline that would sit well with a child who has experienced loss, but also a child who hasn't. And so it kind of puts them in space of, you know, when you lose something, it could be anything. It could be a pet. Um, how does it make you feel? And so, yeah, I sort of, within the book, I, I'd left, I basically had a quote of it's okay to feel sad. And then next to that, I would put uh, like a blank page for them to express how they're feeling. So it could be writing, drawing. Um, and, and at the top, it would say, this page is for you. And then, and then there was some, another page, which is similar, which says, close your eyes and remember someone special. And then next, next to it, you'd have a blank page there as well. So I, I wanted to kind of, I wanted the book to obviously be a story, but I wanted it to have an element of giving children that sort of space to, um, to remember a loved one. And mm. um, exp- because, 
you know, as I know, as you know, you know, creativity and using your words and drawing, however it is, is so powerful and and can help you in so many ways. I wanted to give child a child that sort of space too. Yeah. Why do you think that is though? I mean, obviously I completely agree with you that creativity is a particularly uh, good way of expressing, let's say, difficult emotions. But why is that? Mm. do you know what I mean like why is it I mean there are certain not even to be academic about it there are certain roots to it in terms of it might be that I think with trauma for example sometimes it is difficult to even say the words um or to even say somebody's name can be for want of a better term very triggering or whatever but in terms of things like drawing that is that why it's so helpful do you think or I mean why creative processes it's, it's quite a mad one isn't it it's sort of mm. basically you're putting things out in your mind that either consciously or subconsciously you are aware of you know and like I was saying with writing the Otis books and the Thea books it just came and it just flows and these you know but then you know with say the characters and part of the storyline you it's only until later on when you read back that maybe certain parts of this actually relate to me and my life like the professor poopy character his uncle is probably that male figure that i wished i had growing up you know through my teens and all that you know a man to go to who i could talk to which i didn't have there and so i just think it's it's a way of getting expressing your feelings and your emotions i think more so emotions onto a bit of paper or even just out vocally um, that you might not even know is there, you know, and it's sort of, that's how it mm. kind of, it is a strange one, how 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 you can kind of channel those things in, in, in that way. Yeah. It, I mean, it really is because we kind of take it as a given, like, oh yeah, yeah, creativity is very helpful, blah, blah, blah. But when you think about it, it's like, what I find quite interesting about it as well is that when you're using visual arts, spoken music, whatever, it's fascinating because there's a certain level of detail that comes out that would be really, really difficult to talk about or even articulate in words. And yet when you do it through a pen or a pencil, whatever, the intricacy of the details manifest. And yet that is in some ways the most difficult part. Mm. It, it's very um it's very strange. It's a little ant on my arm. I've I've been feeling that for the last ten minutes, wondering yeah. what's this little wiggling on my arm? It's an ant. <laughs> Never mind. Um just coming back as well, like one of the things that I think is is really important to talk about is is representation. And I think it's it's really amazing that you're being conscious of the fact that there is not enough representation of black or mixed race characters in in books. One of the things that I've been umming and ahhing about in my mind, especially over the last few months, is how grief can be used as a political vehicle, deliberately or otherwise. So obviously at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think there's something to be said about how grief can or should or isn't being acknowledged. So to grieve, I would say, means acknowledging that something or someone of value has been lost. And I wonder what that plays in a collective grief or finding a social grief that perhaps is not happening that needs to. And similarly with Corona, what's your position on, do you, 
I mean, when when the lockdown happened here, for me, I was kind of seeing the numbers going up and up and up and up. And I did have this sense of just feeling completely bereft. After a certain point, the numbers became so high that it was no longer possible for me to comprehend them as people. But actually now I'm turning my attention back and thinking, I think we need to grieve. Mm. Do we need to find a way as a society, as a world, as a country, as a community, whatever, to find a way to collectively grieve? And I think the same could be said as a Black Lives Matter movement. And and how does grief play a political role in how we bring about social change? I know that's a very difficult and complex question, but... (laughs) I'm intrigued about your thoughts. It's a very interesting conversation to have. And I think when we're looking at, say, the Black Lives Matter movement, that you know, so recently, and how it kind of really resonated with so many people from, you know, I think it's the first time that it's really connected with a a larger audience, it felt, you know. Um, In the UK, it felt like that. And so, but at the same time, I think it it also flicked a switch in terms of like you were saying about the coronavirus and how everyone's been feeling. I think it kind of had that collective feeling. Yes, it was to do with Black Lives Matter and that was, you know, the main focal point. But I think it would have been interesting to see how how things would have played out if, say, coronavirus hadn't happened, you know. I just think the mm. passion, I think that the sort of the amount of passion that was there and the and 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 the collective sort of, like you said, the grief, and and I've been contacted by a lot of people who sort of said, oh, you know, what's your thoughts on people saying that they're they're grieving um, through coronavirus in terms of the, the the world that they once knew has now changed, you know, forever. Um, and I, you know, my stance was basically, I'm not sure they can truly grieve until somebody has died, but. That's only my opinion. But then that slowly started to change in terms of just sort of seeing how the impact of all of this has had the effect on everybody. And like, you know, the the mental health on people who've just been, you know, stuck indoors and haven't been able to connect with anyone and social isolating. And so I think there's just been a massive, massive um, failing on from the government's part to to accept the fact of how everybody's been feeling. And and I think after all of this, there's going to be, well, after, if it ever goes away, you know, the, the sort of, the, the like you said, the social change in terms of everybody, there's going to be a lot of people out there who are suffering that need support. And so we're going to have to put something in place for, for, for those out there who are struggling. Um, it could be, it could be a positive thing in a way of like a, an awakening in terms of getting people to talk about their feelings and how it's made them feel. And then that in turn might help in the long run, you know, with, with people learning how to express themselves when it comes to this difficult subject. Um, But I just feel that I feel with the Black Lives Matter and, and, and the coronavirus that it kind of, it was such a huge wave all at once that it kind of resonated with so many people in 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 the same sort of way i don't know it felt it, it felt like that um so yeah i think it's, it's a very complex question but 
I think firstly the government needs to needs to recognize to, that they need to put things in place to support people mental health wise you know we need to have sort of more practitioners I think this is I mean you know if anything it's a great opportunity to to open up conversations you know um which which people out there are struggling to know how to 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 talk about essentially um mm. the people sat, sitting there at home right now are going you know I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I'm feeling. These I've never had these feelings before. How? What do I do with them? And so I think something needs to happen um, with a lot of professionals out there who 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 I'm sure are going to be quite busy, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. You you've made the the link between grief and bereavement um, and mental health a few times. So can you tell me a bit more? Like, what are you thinking in terms of the uh what's the word I mean kind of correlation or Mm. how do the two tie in is it kind of like a an after effect that you know because I mean my assumption is you know if you've been through bereavement does it lead to I mean we talked about trauma but depression and the anxiety that comes with that or like where where's your thinking on on mental health yeah I think it is is exactly that and you know I'm only going by my own experience really but it's you know you just when someone dies, you, you might grieve for a short while and then you just don't talk about it again, maybe. Um, and so I think from, from my thought process is that if you're not talking about that, where's it going to go? You know, if you've got these emotions and these strong feelings, where are those feelings going to go if you're not dealing with them? Um, it doesn't have to be four months after, but soonish, you need to kind of recognize that you need to talk about these things. Otherwise, later on in life, you're going to have that build up of like you say depression um sadness um and we've seen the rise of you know um suicide you know people not knowing how to deal with feelings and then they just take take that way and and so it's 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 yeah that's why I kind of I I kind of connect the two quite quite easily in terms of my my own experience but just through talking to my guests on my podcast and, and, and the messages that I get from people, wow, yeah, I thought I dealt with that, but I haven't. And for me, that is a mental, that is connecting with your mental health and, and, and kind of, it's when it gets in, in the way of your everyday life that, that that's when, you know, it needs to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting point about suicide as well, though, because I think that's the the other area that people find incredibly difficult to to talk about, and almost like people just don't want to confront it as a a real and very pressing issue until it's too late. Um, and even when it is too late, like not knowing how to respond to the friends and family um, of whoever's died, just this kind of. I mean, I just I just don't know how to have that conversation really I mean like what what do we do to tackle this it, it's so it's so painful mm. but it, it's just a very it's an interesting phenomenon because not necessarily suicide but like I was saying earlier like it, death is something that is unfortunately inevitable and something that does affect us all in some way or another and yet it seemed to be one of the most impossible subjects I mean I can't think of many thing that would be quite a taboo and yet so prevalent yeah it's do you know i find i find it hard myself to know how to 
how to address it. But I mean, I've I've contacted lots of um, I guess lots of schools, some councils to say, you know, how can we get this into schools? How can we talk about um, grief and bereavement? And you know, if anything, I think it's maybe when kids hit sort of year five, year six, when they're like ten, eleven, you know, it's. It's learning how to teach children to open up and share their feelings, talk to a friend who they trust, talk to their parents, talk to whoever it is in their lives that they feel um, able to, to, to talk to. Um, but I think in schools, it's just about, it's just teaching kids how to talk about their feelings, really. And, and, and I'm not saying it has to be part of the curriculum. I'm just saying it, it needs to be part because do you know what? I kind of I likened it to a bit like to you know Jamie Oliver was amazing at um, campaigning about obesity and or has been and is, and and I kind of likened it to that because you know if we're not teaching children also how to look after their bodies and eat well, but also how to express their feelings, then we're going to have a nation full of. Um, adults eventually struggling with their mental health and where's that going to go and how's it going to manifest it's going to manifest into everyday life it's going to manifest itself into their family life their work life and so I think it's something that we need to kind of address in schools you know we need to kind of really open up the conversation um because you know from from what I've read there, there are lots of other countries out there who who are good at bringing in the conversation early at least teaching children how to express their feelings um I don't remember having any form of conversation about that when I was younger you know mm. sort of the history maths all of that stuff it's like boom 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 and I mean the other part of it is obviously and it needs to be because the pressures that are from exams that kids get you know at an earlier age and I worry for my own kids you know when they're they're doing their sort of sats and things like that how is that going to affect them and, and where are those feelings where's it going to go you know so it kind of walks hand in hand if if I'm honest you know it's it's a feeling that the government needs to address um parents you know there are a lot of great parents out there I think who want want that sort of thing within the curriculum in terms of addressing it and their feelings and helping their child out and they probably do an amazing job at home but you know, if they if they school turned around and said, well, we're going to get the kids talking more about feelings, you know, how are they feeling, talking to their friends, I would be all for it. And so um, I just think it's kind of, it can be a systemic thing that we're still stuck in the dark ages in a sense sometimes, you know, with the way that our education system is running. And um, oh, it, it's such a complex thing, you know, I'm I'm just about to I, at the beginning of this year I started recording my new podcast called The Knife to do with knife crime and I was just thinking about knife crime yeah and just thinking about that and you know and I carried out a few interviews so far you know one with a bereaved mum uh, whose son was murdered and and I was listening to a, a one extra podcast the other day actually and it was really good and this lady was like if I had the option I wouldn't put my kid in school they're not serving him and until that happens that's when I would put them back in you know and it's just like it's such an interconnected woven thing you know our kids at school and, and the feelings and, and sharing and opening up and 
And if this happens, then you never know what that might do to to help with you know that in our society that is a massive problem with knife crime and, and youth violence. And so, yeah, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a complex um, conversation, really, isn't it? It is, it is, but nonetheless, a, a really, really urgent one. Yes. I think I'm very interested about this podcast. So, what what's the the premise of that podcast? So the premise of the podcast is basically to explore um, why we as a society are still experiencing young deaths through violent acts. And um, so it kind of obviously going back to my own, um, you know, my own experiences as a child and the power of a knife and just seeing these young kids walking around with these implements that can just ruin lives and do such damage. And it kind of, it, 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 it was weird. You know, it was like when we were talking about creativity and thinking about things that just flow through you, I was like, I need to do something. I need to open up a conversation at least. But I wanted to do it where I had balanced opinions from different walks of life, you know, and um, I was actually reconnecting with a lady this morning whose son committed an act and killed someone. And so I'm going to be interviewing her about it. And she's been very public about sharing that and how that has also affected her life. But what, say, parents could maybe do or guardians to stop that from happening, you know, the signs the, that she missed, um, things like that. And then also just loads of organizations out there that maybe pe people might not be aware of that I could try and shine a light on, you know, um, like uh you know leap and and all of these sorts of organizations that um that do fantastic work you know whether it's teaching children how to or kids how to you know apply pressure if their friend is stabbed or or violently hurt that you know their potential death and and so really it's kind of my way of, sort of trying to shine a light on it but also continuing the conversation because you know, I think it was maybe the middle of last year where there, you know, it was in the press and the news, and then all of a sudden it goes quiet. And so, yeah, it just feels like it's what a conversation that needs to kind of keep going, you know? Yeah. Mm. I mean, interesting, because I think it kind of does a full circle because uh, some of my research is around uh, knife violence and also how rap music and how music in general can actually be a way that we have those conversations and yet on the other hand we see a response to knife violence to censor music and to actually shut down the creativity mm. like UK Drill for example and it, it's really interesting how they all end up kind of coming back together again and again that fear of hearing somebody talk about their experiences because they don't like the way that it it's put or whatever yeah I don't know if you well you probably have um George the Poet's um mm. podcast which is incredible but there's also an iPlayer BBC iPlayer where he's interviewing guests and there was I can't remember their names um there was this this couple who came on and they were talking about really drilling into the it was amazing drilling it, in exactly drilling in. yeah um but talking talking about the lyrics that these artists are using and what they actually mean sort of looking at the psychology behind it and how in a way, it's like a cathartic way of them expressing their feelings, you know, like you just said, and it's powerful. And what does it truly mean? What are they really trying to say? 
because if you if you listen to something and you're just like yeah okay um that's what that is but if you're truly listening and i didn't even think about this really until i watched this in, uh, interview and i was like wow this is true and we're you know talking about creativity and the power of words with the draw music and the words that they're using there's so much more within their lyrics that you really realize and you know it kind of goes back into society and where they've come from and, and what they've been subjected to and that childhood trauma and you know and all of these things and i tell you there's someone called carl loco who's also i'm going to be hopefully interviewing for the podcast the knife crime podcast who used to be a gang member and now he's just fantastic at talking about his experience but he's just saying that yeah you've got this trauma that builds up where does it go what do you do with it mm. And if you're channeling it in a creative way, then surely that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think uh, I'd love to do a whole, maybe another series on just drill music and knife violence because I think it is so... Um, I'm trying to think. I just feel like it's a very urgent issue to talk about the the censorship and what that's actually doing I think what you're talking about in terms of trauma and people not being heard by censoring people's expression whether that's in drill music or any other form it's only gonna surely exacerbate what's happening so I think that's um what's the podcast called again so everyone so can go and be, check it out it's gonna be called the knife it's not out yet the knife. um but yeah it's just you know when I was <clears throat> it's just something that got in the way with covid and and with with uh, grief as my superpower, I was like, okay, well, I could do this remotely. And then I thought I was kind of waiting to see what would happen with everything going on. It was like, it doesn't you know, not a lot seems to be happening. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I think it's time to get back into it and do it. And um, and so yeah, over the last week, I've sort of been recontacting my guests and all of these things, you know. So yeah, I'm going to try and put it out as soon as I can. But it's called the knife. So yeah, if you can keep a keep a watch out for for that. I definitely will. It sounds brilliant. <laughs> and it is now time for something slightly different. It is what's the three, the variation of the question that I'm asking everybody. Today, my question to you, Mark, is what three Disney characters, although it doesn't have to be Disney, but what three Disney-ish characters do you identify with most? So I have been thinking about it for myself and I have noticed a concerning trend because my first one is Ursula from The Little Mermaid. I don't know why, but I just get her. The second one for me is not even a human. It's the hyena or the hyenas from The Lion King. Okay. And I just I just feel like a kindred spirit there for some reason. What are your top three Disney-ish characters that you identify with oh wow this is quite a question <laughs> um okay i got i've got to make sure that um what did i watch the other day with the kids is it hercules is that disney you know where he's disney-ish yeah disney-ish uh yeah, oh, I was thinking about characters actually because he kind of didn't actually. Maybe that does connect because he kind of realizes that he, you know, he doesn't have the strength, but then all of a sudden he does, you know, and it's like, mm. wow, I got this. Maybe I could go with him. Uh, who else? Um, let's try and think of something. Uh, da, 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 da. 
Um, <laughs> what about the lobster in uh, what's the? I'm gonna go. I could go with that. That is the Little Mermaid, no? Little Mermaid, yeah. I think maybe because he's um, he's quite. He gives good good advice and stuff like that. I think maybe I could be that to the kids. You know, I'd be that lobster. Um, and <laughs> this is so random. And then what else? Okay. Um, da, da, da. You know, for my kids, I'm gonna say um, what what I'm gonna, what's the Lion King called? I've forgotten his name. The main, you know, Simba. Simba. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that. Because, well, basically, I watched Black is King the other night with Simone. I don't know if you've watched it yet on Disney. I haven't yet, no. You should watch it. It's incredible. I mean, the visuals and the music's brilliant. But I was just like, yeah, that I I would I would go for that. Just purely for the kids, really, because, you know, I would like to be that character for them. Yeah. Well, we are sharing two films then. I will find myself in Hercules somehow, <laughs> some way. But we've both got Little Mermaid and The Lion King down. So that, that's, that's a good sign. Done it, done it. Job done. <laughs> In the meantime then, Mark, where can people find you? So tell us where to find your podcast, your Instagram, your website. Yeah, so you can mainly find me on Instagram at MarkLemonOfficial. Um, I'm also on Twitter as um, Lemon Drop Books. Uh, you can find me at Lemon Drop Books, our website. It's where we... Um, we sell uh, all of our books and um, where else? Also the podcast, Grief is My Superpower is on Apple Podcasts and it's also on SoundCloud. So yeah, I think they're, they're the main places where you can you can get me. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I just joined Twitter this morning. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I saw your, I your Instagram thing. Yeah. I did. I've got like three followers. Twitter, um, I'm, I'm a bit in and out with Twitter. I'm not. You know, the people on there, they like, obviously like to put their words across and some, some not all in a good way, but you know, it it serves its purpose. A bit feisty Twitter, isn't it? It is. I think because things come and go so fast, you know, Instagram, it sort of lingers a bit more. So maybe people aren't so, I'm going to say what I mean. But yeah, it's a bit feisty. <laughs> well, I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, let me uh, Whilst you are uh, lingering on Instagram, you can also follow me at Fandicanton. That's W-A-N-D-A. And I am also on Twitter now. Um, I think my handle is at Fandicanton as well. Um, can't quite remember, but enjoy having a look on there. Thank you very much for listening to Three in a Crowd with Vanda and Mark Lemon. Don't forget to leave a rating and comment on iTunes or wherever you're listening, as this will help other people to find us and if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date as episodes are released thank you so much for being part of three and a crowd mark it was a pleasure to talk to you and i'm leaving with many thoughts uh and above all admiration actually for the fact that you're having all these conversations and able to find that superpower in your own experience so thank you for that thank you so much for having me We'll see you next time.